0: All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. This morning, I just want to start with verse 14, which says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, and saying, Let me stop there. The context is that Jesus and his disciples are up in modern-day Lebanon where he has just taken Peter, James, and his brother John up to a high mountain, we believe Mount Hermon, where there the Lord was transfigured before them. In other words, they got a preview of his second coming glory. Now, we talked about all of this last week. But while they were up there, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and they began to talk to the Lord Jesus. Luke tells us the topic of the conversation was Jesus' departure, so his death and resurrection and ascension, Peter later on in his first epistle says that they also discussed the second coming. And we talked about that to a great degree last week as well. Well, it was such an incredible experience that Peter just blurts out at one point, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. If you desire, let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, in essence, is saying, Lord, can we live up here? Lord, we just want to hang out up here. I don't want to ever leave this place. This is glorious. I just want to stay up here all the time. And I can understand that, okay? Um, We'd all like to live with the Lord on the mountaintop, wouldn't we? We have all as Christians experienced what some have called a mountaintop experience. What does that mean? Well, it's just a time when, you know, maybe you felt the Lord's presence like you never had in your whole life. Maybe it was during a time when you began to share the Gospel with somebody. God opened that door and suddenly the Spirit of God took over. And you were quoting verses you never thought you knew. And it was very powerful. You felt the Spirit working. The Lord was right there. And maybe as you asked them if they wanted to receive the Lord, they said yes and prayed with you. And that's a mountaintop experience, isn't it? You just feel so on top of the world. Oftentimes, And and it's interesting how that in some of our darkest moments, where we're really going through a difficult time, we just get alone in our prayer closet, we'll say. And we're pouring our hearts out to the Lord. Often there are times when the Lord will come to us, not visibly, of course, but where His presence is so powerful, we have really sensed that the Lord has just entered the room in a sense. Paul had this experience when he was in one of the darkest moments of his life, And the Lord Jesus appeared to him uh, in a dream one night and said, Paul, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I've got many people in the city of Corinth. You keep do- doing what I've called you to do. And there are times when we just feel the Lord's presence. Maybe we get a little glimpse of how glorious he really is. And you know, you just want to enjoy that. You don't want to leave that. Okay, you just want to continue to hang out with the Lord in that place. And it's always a blessing when the Lord takes us to a place like that or meets us in a place like that. It's incredible to visit the mountaintop, isn't it? But guys, we cannot live on the mountaintop. We'd like to. We'd all love to camp out in the mountaintop and never leave there. But guess what? That's not where ministry takes place. Ministry doesn't take place on the mountaintop, at least not our ministry to others. It certainly ministers to us. But you know what? Ministry to others, to hurting people takes place in the valley where they live. Okay? And I want to just divide this passage from verses 14 to 21 into two main points. The power of Satan to enslave and then the power of Jesus to set free. First of all, let's look at the power of Satan to enslave. Again, verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, Have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, the desperation of this father, I think, comes through more powerfully in Luke's gospel. Let me just read to you from Luke chapter 9. Now, what happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly, a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only son. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, let me just say this before we go any further. No sooner had they come down from the mountaintop experience than Satan met them at the bottom of the hill. Mark that down, guys. All right, mark it down. It seems like Satan is always waiting at the bottom of the hill to try to to rob you from whatever the Lord gave to you. How he blessed you on the mountaintop. The devil is always waiting at the base of the mountain to try to steal from you what the Lord has given you. Uh, I've seen it so many times in my own ministry. When you experience a time of great victory, a time of great joy over something God has done, be careful because as you enter into the real world again, uh, ministry, be careful because that's when you're most vulnerable to the devil's attack. Case in point, I think of Elijah in the Old Testament. And you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember the story. Israel was full of false prophets at this time. In fact, a very wicked king and queen were ruling Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel especially had gathered around herself 850 false prophets of, of Baal and Ashtoreth that led the kingdom into great idolatry. And God raised up Elijah to confront this wicked king and queen. And he did so by basically challenging their false prophets and saying, look, you know, we're going to settle this once and for all. Who is God? Alright? If Baal is God, then go ahead and worship Him. If Jehovah is God, then worship Him. Here's what we need to do. We need to go up on top of Mount Carmel. And you prophets of Baal and Asherah, kill yourselves an animal. Make an altar. Place it on the altar. And I'll do the same. And then you cry out to your God to cause fire to come from heaven and devour your sacrifice. And then I'll do the same. And whoever answers by fire, he is God. You remember the story, okay? Elijah let the false prophets go first. And so all morning long, they're crying out to their God, right? They're gods. They're screaming and crying out, right? And jumping all over the place and acting like goofballs, you know? And, and Elijah starts mocking them. Call a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he went on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, call, cry out a little. Check it out. Cry a little louder. And in the afternoon they, they, they kind of ramped it up a little bit and they began to cut themselves with lances and things as was their custom to cut themselves uh, in worshiping the, these gods. And all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice they were screaming until they couldn't talk anymore, it says. They were a horse. And so Elijah, at the time of the evening sacrifice, says, Eyes, right, boys, step aside. And he puts the animal on the altar. And says, now dig a trench around the altar. They dug a trench. Now, take a giant basin of water, dump it on the sacrifice. They did. Do it again. They did. Do it again. They did. Until the water ran all over the sacrifice on the ground, filled up this trough, and then Elijah prayed a simple prayer. "O Lord God, you are God. Now, Lord, will you answer by fire and prove to these people once and for all that you are almighty God? And fire came down immediately and not only vaporized the sacrifice, but the stones of the altar and all the water and even the dirt was taken. All right. And so the people cried out, Jehovah, he is God. Duh. (laughs) What does it take, you know, for us to finally get it through our heads that our God is God? And Elijah said, in this great moment of victory and triumph, he said, now take the false prophets of Baal and Astra, take them down to the river and kill them. And the people then rejoiced in God. What a great, literal, mountaintop experience. Well, Jezebel, the wicked queen, gets word of this whole thing. And she sent a messenger to Elijah and said, may God do so to me and more if I don't make your life like one of theirs by this time tomorrow. And so what does Elijah do? He runs for his life. All right? Down into the wilderness where God has to confront him and say, Get get back in You're not doing anything for me down here in the wilderness. Get back in there and, and, and do what I've told you to do. But the idea is that it's during those times of great spiritual victory and triumph that we're just, the Lord has just worked so powerfully. Be careful because the devil, he's very patient. And he knows that in those times of great victory, we often tend to let our guard down. And so he waits until we've finished the, whatever God's done, and then he will attack to try to rob us of the blessings, the victory, the joy that God has just worked in our life. And the devil always works like this. And we see it right here in this story. They no sooner had come down from the mountain when they were met by this desperate father who came kneeling before Jesus and asking mercy for his son, who many of your Bibles translate, he said, he is an epileptic. Actually, the King James Version says he is a lunatic. All right, from the word lunar. Why? Because the Greek word literally means moonstruck. Lord, help my son. He's moonstruck. Well, what does that mean? Well, peoples in that ancient, those ancient cultures in the East, they believed. Why they believed this, I really haven't found out yet but they believed that if you allowed the moon to shine on your face for a prolonged period of time, it would make you crazy. And so that's what they believed. That's where the word lunatic comes from, okay? Somebody who's been moonstruck. And so what the father was saying, Lord, can you help my son? He has been moonstruck, but he wasn't really saying he's crazy. Basically, this man's son had a demon. Now, once again, Luke says that this boy was his only child, was his only child. Matthew records that this boy was very ill. He suffered severely uh, with this demon. In fact, Luke, once again, who was also a physician, tells us that the boy would scream and go into convulsions when this demon would become active in the boy's life. And so he was a mess, and the father was desperate. His child is demon-possessed, and no one, it seems, can help him. But right about the time he had lost all hope, he finally hears about a prophet from Nazareth named Jesus. And he has heard that this prophet has done miracles in people's lives. He has set other people free from demonic possession. And so the father says, this is my last hope. I need to go to this prophet named Jesus. And so he brought his son to Jesus, but where was Jesus? by the mountain with his disciples. Three of his disciples. The other nine were in the valley at the base of the mountain, right? And so he figures, well, you guys are going to have to do. Here's my son, can you cure him? But they couldn't do anything. You know, it's interesting to me that there are many people today who are desperate for help for themselves or for their loved ones. They've tried counselors and professionals, but no one can help them. And then they hear of how Jesus has helped other people. Maybe they work with somebody or have a family member who was so in bondage to alcohol that their life was about ready to be, to be ended. And yet they came to church. They came to Christ. And Jesus delivered them from the alcohol or the drug addiction. Maybe they heard how Jesus healed a marriage that seemed so broken it was not going to survive. Or maybe they they, uh, heard of Jesus uh, healing someone physically. And so they believed that Jesus could help them in their situation. I need to find Jesus. Well, where do you go to find Jesus in the mind of most people? You go to church, right? Folks, do you realize that today in America, there are many, many churches that Jesus is not there? I mean, I'm sorry to have to say that. But there's a lot of churches in America where people go to find Jesus, but he's not there. And his so-called representatives, those who are supposed to represent him, they can't do anything. You know why? Because the Spirit of God isn't there either. And so they become discouraged and disillusioned. This can even happen in good churches. There are good, solid Bible-teaching churches that sometimes when a person is in this much bondage to the devil and they bring, we'll say, uh, a loved one to the church as the church sees the depth of the, of the possession or of the bondage. Uh, and I'm sure what happened was when they brought this young guy to the disciples at first, as Jesus was up in the top of the mountain there, uh, that the demon manifested itself. Demons do not want to be cast out of people. And they will manifest themselves in part to create such horror in the minds of those who represent God that they, they try to scare us into thinking, don't even bother praying over this person. They are in hopeless, hopeless bondage to the devil. Nothing you can do is going to help them. Now we often get our eyes off of the Lord and onto the devil's power and think, wow, I don't even think the Lord can help this person. Are you kidding me? Satan has great power. But Jesus is Almighty God who has all power. Look, the problem isn't Jesus. Even in good churches, it's that many of his disciples don't have any faith, really, when it comes to dealing with a problem of this magnitude. Well, that was the desperate father. Let's look at the demon-possessed boy. Verse 15, the father said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, Mark gives us a little more detail with regard to this scene. Mark tells us in chapter 9 of his gospel Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he, the demon, has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This man's son, as I said, was demon-possessed. And the demon kept motivating him to throw himself into the fire and into the water, trying to push him into committing suicide. And so, too, we see a rise in teenage suicide today. In fact, thousands of teens have taken their own lives in the last few years And many others, maybe five times that number, have attempted suicide. And I'm convinced the solution to to teenage suicide begins with the recognition that it's not really a social problem, it's a demonic problem. It's a demonic problem. Even Women's Day magazine, a secular publication, said this, and I quote, For many teenagers, Satan has become part of their daily lives. Rock lyrics glorify him, werewolves leer from t-shirts, and satanic symbols decorate jewelry. Some kids just want to shock adults, but for a disturbed many, the attraction to satanic ritual is great and deadly, End quote. And I believe that as our country has moved away from God and away from the Bible, more and more people, especially more and more young people, have become interested in the occult. We see young people today obsessed with violent, dark, and even blatantly demonic music, many times offered up by performers who have actually made packs with the devil. I have at home a list of at least 25 or 30 artists, little clips, sound bites, and little video clips of them actually saying that they made a pack with the devil for them to, to become famous and their music to become popular. I even have a video of, um, what's her name, Beyoncé? I've got a video of Beyoncé, her and her husband, two performers who made a pact with the devil. And she has said, and she channels some female warrior goddess during her concerts, and as the clip was being played, the person who put it together said, now look at her face. At one point, her face began to contort. She even said, when I'm performing... Something takes over. It's not even me anymore. I'm pretty shy by nature. And I believe she's channeling a demon on stage. And then we don't think that the music they're pumping out isn't going to affect the kids listening to it? We see young people obsessed with vampire and werewolf movies, with demonic video games that glorify witchcraft. Some of these games actually use actual incantations from witches. They actually go to people in Wicca because they want to, you know, make it as real as possible so they will incorporate actual incantations and spells. Amazing. And all of this has led to an increase in demonic possession among young people and at very least severe demonic oppression. This demonic influence in these young people, listen, is being manifested in personality changes Violent mood swings, depression, antisocial behavior, cutting themselves, suicidal tendencies, and even in suicide packs among young people. Several years ago, I was reading a uh, in the newspaper about a rural town, small town, rural town in Arkansas, where one day a young man stood up in his senior class, turned to a girl he had a crush on, and announced to her, I love you, and then opened his letterman's jacket, pulled out a gun, and blew his brains out. Now, for a small town anywhere in America, that would be shocking. And certainly, this town was shocked and horrified at this event. But nothing could have prepared them for what was coming. Because in the next four days, three other teenagers committed suicide in that little rural community. So in less than a week, four teenagers had taken their own lives in just one town in America and what is now being called by the experts cluster suicides. People say, well, yeah, but those kids were, were troubled, they were disturbed, they were loners. You better think again. One of the young people that died had been one of the most popular in his high school. He was an athlete, an exceptional student, well-liked, and had everything going for him. And experts are saying this is the kind of young person who is fitting the profile of this phenomenon more and more. Experts also tell us that every year eight to 10,000 young people take their own lives in this country. That number is second only to the number of kids who die in automobile accidents every year. In fact, every 80 seconds a teenager attempts suicide in America and every 90 minutes one of them is successful. What would cause these kids, often from middle class, upper middle class families, uh, popular, uh, good students, what would cause these kids... To want to take their own lives individually or in clusters or in suicide packs. Professionals have admitted that they really don't have any good answers to why teen suicide is up three to four hundred percent since nineteen fifty five. The reason they don't have a, have an adequate answer is because they're not looking in the right place for the cause. And that's the scriptures. God's word teaches that Satan is real. Demons are real. And that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he will use whatever means he can. Now listen to me. I don't believe that Satan has the authority to simply take over a person's life. I don't believe the devil can come to anybody, young person, older person, and just decide, I'm going to take over you. There has to be a door opened. Young kids today who have been raised in homes where really God has not really been taught or honored, His Word is not known no spiritual foundation has been laid, have now been opened up to the spirit realm, and we know to the evil side of the spirit realm. And I'll tell you what, they're getting involved in things, often occult things, because it seems cool. It promises them some kind of power. They want to make people fall in love with them, so they want to learn certain incantations and spells. They also want to put hexes on enemies and so on. So the occult promises power. And if you talk to young people, that's the number one reason they say they get involved in the occult, for power. And the devil will give them a little power to hook them in. Because the devil knows once they begin to open the door to him, what they're doing is they're giving him legal license to enter their lives at that point. See, it's like a locked door. It's like our own house, all right? If it's locked, in in general people can't get in we don't want to get in but when you open that door and you invite them in now they're inside and the same is true with the devil once people young people especially begin to open those doors of the occult and the devil comes inside gets a foothold and a beachhead from which he begins to really attack them and the ultimate goal is to eventually destroy them with suicide he comes to steal kill and destroy he'll use whatever he means he can to accomplish those purposes now, once he begins to, to, to come into their life and begins to, to take over more and more control, they manifest these these various problems, okay? Depression, mood swings, antisocial behavior, cutting themselves, and so on. Of course, parents become frantic, rightly so. Parents don't know what's going on, really. They just know their child is not acting normally. So, of course, they bring their child to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, And much of this demonic phenomenon is being misdiagnosed by the medical community as psychological disorders, which doctors then attempt to treat with drugs that target brain chemistry, but that often makes the problem worse and causes parents to become more and more desperate to find someone who can help them find a cure for their child, much like this father became very, very desperate. Now, to this father's credit, he did the right thing. He brought his son to Jesus. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Mom and Dad, you have the responsibility to bring your child to Jesus. Pray for him constantly. Talk to him continually. Bring him to fellowship regularly. How many must die before we understand that the solution lies not in dealing with the drug lords in Columbia or banning music through legislation in Washington. The solution lies in bringing our kids to Jesus. He said, I appreciate this, Father, because he didn't give up. Even though the disciples weren't able to help, so often people say, well, I took my kid to see this therapist, that counselor, that minister, but nothing happened, so I quit. This dad didn't quit, and his persistence was soon to be rewarded. Now, let me just say this. We talk about bringing our kids to Jesus. It implies taking them away from the devil. And there's a lot of parents today, and I know that they don't mean any harm to their kids. It's just that they have a glaring lack of discernment when it comes to these things. You know, I've heard parents say, well, so what if my kids are into the Twilight Saga stuff? So what if they watch the movies and, and, uh, and uh, you know, go on the website? And, and earlier before that, we had the Harry Potter phenomenon, right? And we tried to talk to parents. We had videos in the church to show them the evil side of it. In fact, the Harry Potter website, when it first came out, actually, and I I went on there and checked it out, it actually linked to literal, real, Wiccan websites leading these kids into witchcraft. You try to tell parents this. Warn them. Don't expose your kids to this. You're, You're handing them over to the devil. Oh, that's ridiculous. Just harmless entertainment, you know? Uh, all this werewolf stuff, all this walking dead, all this, you know, all these things. It's just, it just harmless entertainment. Harmless entertainment. Then we wonder why these kids can't cope Whether they're acting not like themselves anymore. They're depressed. They're talking suicide and attempting suicide. I know somebody very close to me, a young lady, Christian girl, but got into the twilight stuff, began to read the books, and then at night she began to be visited by apparitions, the demons really. She became so terrified she couldn't even sleep in her own room anymore. You know, this is not something that, you know, kids play with Ouija boards and everything else like that and they think it's fun. It's not fun. It's not harmless entertainment. You're opening the door to the demonic. and Once you open the door to the demonic... Well, now you can't tell the devil get out because once you allow him in, he's going to stay until someone stronger than him throws him out. And that brings us to our second point, doesn't it? First of all, the power of Satan to enslave, but the power of Jesus Christ to set free. Amen? And that's the only one who can set us free or set our loved ones free who have been dabbling with this junk. And it doesn't always have to mean just a cult. I mean, you know, people are in bondage to a lot of things. Alcohol, drugs, pornography... I mean, those are all areas that Satan is is enslaving people. But the answer is the same. The solution is the same for everybody. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. So in verse 16 we read, So I brought him, the Father said, to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Once again, Mark records a little more detail. He said, Bring him to me, Jesus said. Then they brought him to Jesus. And when they when he saw him, the demon, immediately the spirit convulsed the child. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, Jesus did, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You can't help but feel this father's pain over his son's condition. His heart is broken. He's desperate. He comes to Jesus in utter humility. He didn't come with any haughtiness. He didn't approach Jesus with a swagger in his step, trying to show Jesus how spiritual he was and therefore worthy of Jesus helping him. He didn't come like so many are being taught today to come to Jesus and almost demand your healing. No, he came with a broken and contrite spirit. The very thing the psalmist said in Psalm 51, verse 17, God will never turn away a person who comes to him with a broken and contrite spirit. The thing I appreciate about this father is First of all, that he was honest, humble, and real. Real. And his prayer was simple, heartfelt, and genuine. It wasn't powerful. It wasn't lofty. It was simple. It was humble. You know, Max Lucado, in one of his devotionals, actually talks about this very incident. Talks about this father and his simple prayer. Let me read it to you. He says, some of you pray like a Concorde jet, smooth, sleek, high, and mighty. Your words reverberate in the clouds and send sonic booms throughout the heavens. If you pray like a Concorde, I salute you. If you don't, I understand. Maybe you're more like me, more a crop duster than a Concorde. You aren't flashy, you fly low, you seem to cover the same ground a lot, and some mornings it's tough to get the old engine cranked up. If you struggle with prayer, I've got just the guy for you. Don't worry, he's not a monastic saint, he's not a, a callous need apostle, nor is he a prophet whose middle name is meditation. He's not a too holy to be your reminder of how far you need to go in prayer. He's just the opposite, a fellow crop duster, a parent with a sick son in need of a miracle. The Father's prayer isn't much, but the answer is, and the result reminds us, The power is not in the prayer. It's in the one who hears it. He prayed out of desperation. His son, his only son, was demon-possessed. Ever since the boy was young, the demon had thrown him into fires and water. Imagine the pain of the father. Other dads could watch their children grow and mature. He could only watch his suffer. While others were teaching their sons an occupation, he was just trying to keep his son alive. What a challenge. He couldn't leave his son alone for a minute. Who knew when the next attack would come? The father had to, re- had to remain on call on alert 24 hours a day. He was desperate and tired and his prayer reflects both. He said, If you can do anything for him, please have pity on us and help us. Listen to that prayer. Does it sound courageous? Confident? Strong? Hardly. A classic crop duster appeal. More meek than Mighty. More timid than towering? More like a crippled lamb coming to a shepherd than a proud lion roaring in the jungle? If his prayer sounds like yours, then don't be discouraged, for that's where prayer begins. It begins as a yearning, an honest appeal. Ordinary people staring at Mount Everest. No pretense, no boasting, no posturing. Just prayer. Feeble prayer, but prayer nonetheless. This prayer isn't destined for a worship manual. No psalm will result from his utterance. His prayer was simple, but Jesus responded. He responded not to the eloquence of the man, but to the pain of the man, end quote. Something to remember next time you're facing a Mount Everest of problems and you think you're unworthy to come before God and you don't really know what to say. You just have to cry out to him in simplicity. He knows what's going on. And so in Matthew 17, verse 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Mark records, When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, To a deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. You know, it's interesting, the demon that possessed this boy manifested itself in physical handicaps. In this case, it took from him the ability to hear and speak. When the devil has really gotten hold of a person's life, especially in possession, it will often manifest itself in physical infirmities. We read in Luke's Gospel, how that Jesus was teaching one day at a synagogue on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a a woman, it says, who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over so that she could in no way uh, raise herself up. 18 years, bent over. I've actually seen pictures of people in the Middle East uh, who are bent over like this. And of course, Jesus healed her on the Sabbath, and of course, the Pharisees and scribes got all upset, and Jesus rebuked them. He said, "You know, if you have an animal that falls into a ditch in the Sabbath, you'll immediately pull it out, loose it, won't you? Pull it out." He says, "Yet this this daughter of Abraham, who has been bound by Satan these 18 years, you didn't want, you don't want me to help." It tells us, and don't misunderstand, please. I am not saying that everyone who has some kind of physical handicap or infirmity has a demon. And needs deliverance. Please don't go out and say, Pastor Phil said that, okay? I'm not saying that, all right? I'm just saying the scriptures teach that sometimes physical issues are demonic in nature and they need to be handled on that level. How do we know? We pray. We pray, we ask the Lord, okay? Is this something that is spiritual in nature? Uh, Am I or my loved one, uh, are we being attacked? Or that causes you to do a little spiritual inventory and ask yourself, well, have I been getting into something that maybe is forbidden in Scripture? Have I maybe inadvertently opened a door? I mean, you know, you think I'm crazy, but, you know, Christians read their horoscopes, Christians go to yoga classes. We got yoga in the church. I can't believe how many churches are offering yoga classes under the guise of Christian yoga. Do you realize the whole point of yoga... The word yoga means to yoke. These exercises are designed to yoke a person to the Hindu god Brahman. Oh, but I don't do it for that. I don't do it for the spiritual. I just do it for the physical benefit. Well, once again, I challenge you to go online and, you know, talk to the people that invented yoga. Okay? The Tibetan monks and things. I mean, they're online. They got computers. Believe me. All right? (laughs) I've actually read articles where they're furious with Christians for hijacking something that they know is what they have developed for their religion. And they say Christians say that they can use it and just practice the physical. You can't do that, they said. You cannot do that because these very exercises were designed to yoga a person to Brahman. And every exercise connects you a little more, a little more, and so on and so forth. I don't have time to get into the whole yoga thing today, but the idea is that... Christians are opening doors to the demonic and they don't even realize it. And then they're battling with certain symptoms, physical problems oftentimes, and they're running to doctors. God love them. That can't really help them because the problem isn't physical. It's spiritual in nature. And so we see the dynamic Savior who set this boy free. And quickly the defeated disciples, verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? We'll talk more about that next time. Because Jesus, in response to their question, gives a couple of powerful principles for having victory over the devil's power in our lives. And I've called this message Having Victory Over the Demonic. Jesus talks about genuine faith and the power of fasting and prayer. And I want to look at those next time because they're just too important to rush through. But... It's very important that we understand that we're living in the last days and Jesus himself said in the last days deception would be ramped up to the point where if we didn't know the Word of God we would be sucked into it even as believers. Paul told us that. In the last days, perilous times would come. He said the church would begin to embrace doctrines of demons in the name of biblical Christianity. I think of Christianized transcendental meditation or contemplative prayer, spiritual formation. Same things under different names. Churches are rife with spiritual formation and contemplative prayer, which is nothing more than Christianized transcendental meditation. We need to be discerning. We have to be in the Word to know what God has said, that we stay away from these things. But even if you stay away from all of those things and you're walking with the Lord, the devil is going to still try to attack you. And we need to know what God has given to us to remain victorious. And they're not secret, folks, okay? It's the Word of God, prayer, coupled with fasting at times, all founded on true faith. So we'll look at some of that next time as we just finish this little uh, two-part message about having victory over the demonic. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, that Your Word is truth, and if we walk in Your Word, we'll never stumble in darkness. Your Word is light. And, Lord, we thank You For the light of Your Word, we thank You for the power of the Spirit that fills us. But Lord, even though the devil cannot, Lord Jesus, You said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, that even You knock on the door of our heart, asking us to open it up to let You in. You don't kick the door open. If You don't do that, Satan can't certainly do that. But people open the door of their life, of their heart, of their minds to the devil freely. And then he comes in and begins to attack. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us discernment to stay away from the things that we need to stay away from and to embrace what is good and holy and pure and righteous and things that are praiseworthy and and so on. Father, we just pray that you would make us uh, discerning in these last days, men and women of your word. And we just thank you, Lord. And uh, Father, we just pray you continue to bless this uh, two-part study. And we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.